All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I don't know why I said that with such exuberance today. I'm Aaron Marketer, and I had no idea what Missy was laughing at. <laughs> I was just like really intense about a podcast. Today, we are talking about the Almighty Johnsons. Um, but first, I would like to do some thank yous. Thank yous all around. Thank you, Leslie, for commissioning this show. I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it once we got past the first season. Uh, also, thank you to Dr. Roseanne Welch and Dr. Karen Beeler, uh, because there seem to exist like two pieces, like critical things about the Almighty Johnsons, and I could not find either of them. So I emailed two different professors who was like, hey, can you hook me up? And they not only did they, they responded like immediately. So that's nice. Thank you for your promptness. Thank you for helping me get this episode done. And thank you for investing your time in a show that like apparently not a lot of people are into. I mean, it had a big following in New Zealand, I guess. But like as far as critical work goes, there just wasn't a lot of it. And like as the seasons went, there clearly could have been. Yeah, for sure. Um so thank you, everybody, for your time and your investment in The Almighty Johnsons. Um, so first of all, The Almighty Johnsons is a New Zealand comedy drama show. It gets a little muddled there at times, which is not like it's not like you can't have comedy and drama. But like some of the stuff going on in the beginning of season two, I was like, this is intense. Everything with Ty. Everything with Ty was really upsetting. Uh, it primarily follows the Johnson family, Axel, Mike, Anders, Olaf, and Ty. In the world of the show, the Norse gods begin to lose their power. Um, they, they began, rather. They, had be they began to lose their power, and then they traveled to New Zealand for refuge. Uh, and now they are reincarnated into the body of a vessel when that vessel turns 21. Um, so Axel, who is our main protagonist, has just turned 21. He is revealed to be Odin. Um, the all father, the, you know, the big, the big one, uh, the big daddy, the big, please <laughs> don't say that about Axel. <laughs> he is quite big. I thought you were going to say he is quite daddy and I was no. going to cancel the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. He's just really tall. He is really tall. Uh, I will give you that. He's super tall. Um, <laughs> Mike is Ul, which is god of games and hunting. Anders is Bragi, god of poetry. Olaf is Balder, the Johnson's oracle, and also the god of renewal. Um, and Ty is Hod, who in the show is the god of cold. But in what we know of Norse myth is actually super vague. It's kind of hard to tell what he's the god of. Oh, really? Yeah, he's uh, he's he's only he's spoken of pretty infrequently. Um, and his main role is to kill Balder. He gets tricked into it by Loki. We'll talk mm. about it a little more later. Uh, according to the prophecy within the show, Axel must find the incarnation of Frigg, Odin's mythological wife, to return the gods to their former power. If he dies before his quest is completed, all of the gods will die. Um, in the first season, there's also other, other gods and goddesses that you come into contact with throughout the show. The main ones are a group of goddesses who in the first season are trying to stop um, the Johnsons from finding Frigg so that they can retain the power that they have on Earth rather than um, lose it and become subservient to the gods. So the show itself was was pretty popular. Um, it was actually one of the first, if not the first, New Zealand show to make it to the U.S. without being remade. Um, 
so that that's pretty interesting like that's a pretty big deal um but it was canceled after season two which is a terrible time to yeah, cancel it seriously uh and it was brought back for the ending of season two is um a little bit of a cliffhanger so i from the very beginning i was like guy has to be friend guy and like it wasn't <laughs> happening right and so i'm like i'm just gonna fucking google it <laughs> i google it I'm like see i knew it so i was not expecting the ending mm-hmm. So what ha- for me, what happened was I ac- I Googled, I was trying to figure out how many episodes there were in a season, and the plot summary of the last episode is like, blah, 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 finding Frigg. And I was like, what? Really? Because that was like season two when I did that, and I was like, well, something's not going to go right here. Oh, gosh. Um, anyway, uh, it was actually brought back for season three um, before being canceled again. Um, but they they did a good wrap up job. I think they did. I think uh, so. And it was brought back because of fan campaigning, which included sending twigs representing bit, bits <sighs> of Yggdrasil, the world tree from Norse myth, um, which was a big po- plot point in season two. They would just send twigs to the TV network um, to encourage them to renew it. That's hilarious. Um, it's an interesting show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it pretty aggressively mediocre in the first season. Yeah, I just the first, especially the first half. I was, I'm like. I, Thinking back on it, I just think that they didn't know what show they're making. I think mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with um, what their, you know, the executives or the producers and stuff thought it should be, which clearly was this, like, college humor, dude humor, and, like, it just didn't match up. Yeah. And it didn't work. I think, I'll talk about this a bit more later, but I think the show is is kind of self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Like, it wants to say something, but it's too shy to say it. <laughs> um we could talk more about that later but i think the first season in particular is really like it's trying to hide everything it's doing under layers of distance and and um and irony and that kind of stuff and it doesn't it doesn't do the show any favors Mm -hmm. it wasn't the first season wasn't bad it's just like i wouldn't have continued watching it was forgettable yeah it was pretty forgettable but i think in the back half of season two which centered on gaia who is the girl that axel has been in love with presumably forever at least since season one um, she has the potential to be one of two different goddesses, Frigg or Papatuanuku, um, a Maori goddess who embodies the land and earth, which I now realize is very funny because her given name is Gaia. Do you think that she was actually that goddess? Because because Papatuanuku, yeah, because Frigg actually was a full-grown human. No, I think I well, she probably. I don't know how old the the person who's actually Frigg was. Well, she knew she was Frigg. I think. Oh, okay, so I think she. She could have been Papatunuku then. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, Idun slipped in front there. Um, and I, I like that personally because now, you know, toward the, now at the end of the show, the gods have left the human vessels behind, but mm-hmm. they remember everything that happens. That means that if Gaia and Axel get together, you know, off screen in later events, they're doing so because they care about one another, mm-hmm. not because of a prophecy. I cried at the end. With- dawn yeah it was i love dawn i know god justice for dawn i love her um so yeah in the back half of season two gaia um it has the potential to become either frig or papa tuanuku um but she ends up being neither due to some god fuckery she ends that's the honestly i could have explained it in detail but like it is just god it's just god fuckery uh she ends up becoming idun the constant goddess and a sort of doomed consort of bragi who in the human world is a huge prick um we'll get more into gender relations later but i actually found this complication with gaia 
possibly incarnating into one of these two goddess goddesses to be uh, a real improvement for the show because it shifted the show's central conflict to be more about individual characters. Um, and it also brought in the Maori gods through Maori actors. That was cool. Which was pretty sorely lacking from the show, which is pretty overwhelmingly white. I like I like how you describe it later on. <laughs> it's lily white. It is. Uh, the actress for Gaia, uh, Keisha Castle-Hughes, is herself biracial. Her mother is Maori and her father is Anglo-Australian. So I think that opening up the potential for her to be a Maori goddess rather than only a Norse goddess was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some additional wrinkles to Gaia's story that prevent this from being like, you know, like a real slam dunk solution to the show's issues. Um, she still ends up a Norse goddess <laughs> and she still ends up unhappy. And then all of the Maori actors suddenly disappear from the show. Poof. So, you know, uh, but from a purely character perspective, um, I actually thought that that was an interesting and enjoyable twist. I agree. I um, really liked the Maori gods. I did too. I wish that, well, we'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is North Miss. <laughs> I'm going to fuck this up so many times. North myth. North myth. <laughs> that time was like half intentional, but like I, I still fucked it up more than I meant to. Anyway, I want to talk about Norse myth and like what we know of it, because um, just as with Greek myth, there's a lot of temptation to say this is or isn't true in myth. And it's it's never that simple. Um, so I have a quote here from the Almighty Johnson's Norse Gods Redux by Andrew E. Larson, who writes, Most of our knowledge of Norse myth derives from one of three sources. We have a body of Old Norse poetry lumped into two broad categories, Eddic and Skaldic. Oh, also, Missy, again, this is I'm interrupting the quote to say I'm going to mispronounce fucking everything. Uh, and I apologize. There were so many words to look up and I forgot most of the of the pronunciations. And the only one that I remembered to look up again before recording was Maori. Um, so that's, that's it. You're just going to have to deal with my mispronunciations. Uh, back to the quote, back to the quote. Um, most of it comes from a single manuscript, the Codex, Codex Regius, somewhat misleadingly known as the Poetic or Elder Edda, but a good deal also survives as individual verses embedded in various Norse sagas and other texts. The, this poetry has a very complex structure that seems likely to have resisted the sorts of changes common to oral transmission. So scholars generally argue that these poems are genuine survivals from the Viking era. Fortunately, to help us make sense of all this, we have the Prose Edda, written by the Icelandic scholar Snorri Sturluson, uh, died... 1241, I think is what the D stands for. A while ago. You can tell I'm not a real academic. Uh, The Prose Edda is our single most... You are to me. Thank you. Uh, The Prose Edda is our single most important source for Norse... Norse mythology. Most of the famous Norse myths you might have heard about come from this one book. But how, you might ask, did a 13th century Icelander living in a society that had been Christian for almost 250 years know so much about the myths myths of a religion that his people had left behind so long ago and condemned as inferior and immoral good question and unfortunately don't have a really solid answer for that so our knowledge of the norse myths is far from complete um and as larson points out in his post our knowledge is complex like there is a lot of um there's a lot that we know and there is even more that we don't know and that we can't possibly know. Um, one of our most important sources of Norse myth is not a primary source. It's a very good source, but it itself is like, um, you know, thousand years later. Okay. Like 250 years later. 
Um, after the culture, you know, has like been Christianized and, and all of these different things. Um, so it's working from a very different perspective. It's a good source, but it's not a primary source. So we should be cautious and critical of anything or anyone that makes clear and authoritative statements about what the historical Norse people thought or believed. So and something written down mm-hmm. didn't happen till like 250 years later. At least. So it was that happened with Christianity. The Bible yes. wasn't written down till uh, I think a hundred years after. Yeah. It's there's a God, don't get mad at me if I'm wrong. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of wiggle like wiggle room as far as like, oh, because you know, when you it's really just a long game of telephone. Something mm-hmm. that meant something to the Vikings has now been reinterpreted by a Christian, you know hundreds of years later he may be contextualizing it in a very different way than it was originally intended so when people speak authoritatively about norse people we should question that because we don't know for certain and i and i want to make clear with norse norse myth in particular because of the misappropriation of it by white supremacists which we'll get into later um this is something we should be abundantly uh, cautious about um there, there is plenty of room for misinterpretation of, you know, Norse myth for a lot of reasons, which Larson lays out in his post. Um, the main takeaway here is that we have some really excellent sources that are clearly primary and some more derivative sources that, while still good, may contain embellishments or repre- misrepresentations for another purpose. Like they may be making a point of changing something for some purpose that we don't understand that doesn't mean that they are wrong it only means that we cannot be totally certain of what the ancient norse people did or did not believe or do um as you know from a creative perspective that gives modern writers a good deal of freedom when playing with norse myth um one of the primary examples in the almighty johnson's being hod as a god of cold um whereas in what survives of norse norse myth he is best known for being perhaps a blind warrior god who is actually tricked by Loki into killing Balder with a mistletoe arrow. You have mm. to look back at the entire myth of Balder to understand that. But um, his primary association is being the killer of Balder. It was an accident, but he did it. Um, there seems to be some association with cold in some sources about Hod. Um, but as we've already covered, these sources are not necessarily definitive. Um but from a again from a creative perspective that gives writers and artists and so on a lot of freedom um, to interpret them as they like. So this is another quote from that same post. Um, All of this makes it incredibly hard to figure out what many of these myths actually mean. Take for example the story of how the giant stole Thor's hammer and demanded the goddess Freya as the price of returning it. Since Freya refuses to marry a giant, Loki persuades Thor to dress up in drag as Freya with Loki acting as her handmaiden and go to the wedding. There's a lot of comic banter about how Freya has blood red eyes. She's been crying for love of you and how much food she can put away. She hasn't eaten because she's been pining for you. Then when the hammer is put in Thor's lap, he rips off the dress and slaughters all the giants. So as one does, as one does, um, we see this happen to an extent in the Almighty Johnsons, right? Like they they do a fairly faithful reenactment of this specific myth. Um, And we'll touch on that more later. But the reason I bring it up here is because while we can certainly see the mirrored events in in Norse myth and in modern adaptations like the Almighty Johnsons, we can't necessarily understand the connotations as being the same. Um, The Almighty Johnsons, again, we'll get into this later, has a sometimes frustrating relationship with the gender binary. Um, 
and we'll also touch on this later, Norse people and Norse myth also had some conflicting ideas about the roles of men and women in their society, some of which seem surprisingly progressive in modern times, and some of which seem in line with how we generally mistakenly see the past. We tend to think of progress, like social progress as linear, Mm -hmm. when in fact that is not the case. Um, It's not necessarily regressive either. It's just, it's not a straight line. Um, So here with this story, we have Thor dressing in drag and that story seems to be largely comedic, right? We can understand that on some level, the people who were hearing this myth were probably laughing at it. Mm-hmm. What we don't know, what we don't know is what they were laughing at. Were they laughing at the funny joke about his eyes being red? Were they laughing because he was in drag? Were they laughing because the giants were so stupid? Like we don't know what the source of comedy would have been for people in this context. The the dressing as a woman could have been incredibly stealth. Yeah, we we simply don't know what what this meant to the people it was originally intended for because that kind of thing is lost in translation. So is the humor from the fact that Thor, known for being an especially masculine god, manages to trick a bunch of stupid giants into thinking he's a woman? Like maybe is it that the people of that time would have found drag itself as funny rather than liberating or subversive? Maybe it could also be something else entirely. Um, what we can't, we the thing is, we cannot know for certain, so we need to be cautious of assuming what we can know. Like, we can't say, Oh, ancient Norse people were totally okay with dressing in drag because in one myth, Thor did it, and it's like, Well. We don't know the purpose of that myth. Yeah. We don't know what that was saying. So we need to be cautious of projecting our values onto the past and saying things um, in a way like, and again, we'll refer to this, the Greek myths again, where we like to say, oh, well, you know, um, sex between men was acceptable. And it's like, well, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Um, it's just, it's simply not that easy. Uh, so next, let's talk about humor. Um, because this is a comedy show. <laughs> Sometimes. sometimes 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 it's very serious sometimes it's like wow yeah um so it's ostensibly a comedy show but there are a lot of other moods mixed in um season two in particular had some pretty wild mood whiplash um yeah. where i was really uncertain whether i was meant to be laughing or upset um particularly in the storyline with hell being horribly abusive toward ty or the fact that loki attempts to frame axel for rape yeah that was rough it was just like i don't know what I don't know if I'm supposed to be laughing. Like, this is a comedy show, and I feel like you're kind of treating it lightheartedly, but, like... There are other things to leave and believe that you're not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is supposed to be funny or not. Um, while I was researching the show, I kept coming upon comments that New Zealand humor is particularly crass and weird and dark. Mm. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe that's a factor on why some of the humor felt strange to me. It wasn't necessarily that I, like, it was bad or um, unfunny, but there were sometimes I was just kind of like, huh? Um, just for the record, there is an entire Wikipedia page on humor in New Zealand, and it contains hmm. an entire section on sheep jokes. What? So the so the Thor? No, oh, he had goats. He he had goats. Yeah, there's sheep. a lot of jokes apparently between people from Australia and people from New Zealand about having sex with sheep, and they just go back and forth on this. And I, huh. that is a realm of humor that is foreign to me. <laughs> um, I think that the show is quite funny a lot of the time. Um, but the fact that it seems to be a comedy show overall with some very dark plot elements yeah. made me unsure how I was meant to feel about things like Ty and Hell's relationship or even some of Anders's darker manipulations where it's just kind of yeah. like, Ugh. it just kind of felt like, um, 
ha ha ha. Okay, but this person wants to take this really seriously, guys. Yeah, so. I, I there was a lot of times where I just wasn't sure if it was supposed to be funny or if it was supposed to be serious. But overall, I thought the comedy was used well, um, which is more what I want to talk about. Um, so this is from an interview with the Almighty Johnson's producer, Simon Bennett. Um, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, but Bennett said, uh, there is also a very distinctively Kiwi take on the world. The Almighty Johnson's is its own beast. It's not trying to follow in the footsteps of any other genre show. More than being a fantasy show, it's a contemporary sex comedy with blokes at the center. So I would say that most modern sex comedy focuses on men, but we don't need to fixate on that part. Um, sex comedy is a specific comedy genre in which the comedy is largely or entirely derived from sexual or romantic situations, which I feel like is pretty fitting for the Almighty Johnsons, even if it's not only about those things. A lot of the comedy comes from who is having sex with whom, who is not having sex with whom, who wants to have sex with whom, who's in a relationship with whom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a modern, I think there's a modern connotation of a lack of sophistication with sex comedy. When you hear sex comedy, you probably think of American Pie or mm-hmm. um, Super Bad or something like that, which are like fine movies, but like there's a there's a um, connotation of a lack of sophistication. Um, but you can trace sex comedy's roots back to ancient Greece, at least. Uh, with that Ar- would make sense. They probably did a lot of sex comedy. It's true. Uh, with Aristophanes' Lysistrata, uh, which I put too many ta's in. which is about women the women of athens holding a sex strike to demand an end to war you Um, should do that (laughs) uh and even more uh like more modern sex comedies also take on an air of sophistication with time um some like it hot for example or even the graduate now that they are older films there's like an air of sophistication to them even though they are still goofy sex comedies in the case of some like it hot the graduate's a bit a lot more melancholy um, there is quite a lot of sex in the Almighty Johnsons, which we'll get to more in a bit. Um, but I think relationships are really at the center of the show's comedy and drama. Uh, you have, of course, romantic relationships. There's a lot of those. Everybody's sleeping with everybody. Um, As gods do. Yeah. Th- the, luckily, the family members are not sleeping together. That's good. Um, but there's also a lot of familial relationships, right? Um, and sex plays a role in many of these relationships, not only between the people having sex. So, like, there's always the specter of Michelle and Colin's relationship affecting Mike's relationship with Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always there. That's always in his mind. That's always, I'm sure, in the back of her mind. Like, she she had a relationship with a horrible person. Just awful. Just awful. Um, Why'd she do that to herself? Who knows? Well, because she wanted power. Yeah. Um. And sex is not necessarily an inherently meaningful thing to these characters. Um, Ingrid and Olaf really seemed compatible in a way <sighs> that the other characters were not. But by the end of the show, their relationship and their sex life feels like a distant memory. Yeah, it just frustrates me because I loved them together and they I did made too. sense. Yeah, I really like them together. I thought that they brought out the best. And like Ingrid, I feel like she lost like not at her own fault. Like, I don't know. I don't like how she ended up. I think that's fair. I really Ingrid was like my favorite character Same. on the show, like the most like likable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have loved a clearer direction for Ingrid that wasn't being yanked around by somebody else. Yeah, it just kind of felt like she was lost, and then she was only only by other people where she was she able to find some type of purpose. I and agree. That just doesn't feel like Ingrid. Like I feel like she started out so strong and so wonderful and just a delight to watch, and then. She got that terrible boyfriend and it all went downhill from there. Yeah, no, it's definitely true. 
Um, Axel, too, has sex with a whole bunch of women with varying degrees of seriousness, most of which don't lead to anything permanent or even long term. Like he's not profoundly affected by each time he has sex. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a quote from TV Review in praise of the Almighty Johnsons by Pauline Ross, who writes, Now, in most TV shows, sex is either soft focus romantic stuff or else it's outright porn. This is not either of those. This is naked bodies with strategically placed cushions or milk cartons or just hands. And there's a lot of nakedness that has nothing to do with sex at all. It's just people with no clothes on. It's good old fashioned farce, basically. So one thing I noticed while watching the show was the entire lack of sexiness in most of the sex scenes. These were the least sexy sex scenes Oh, it was bad. Especially seasons one and two. Oh, it was bad. Season three seems to have different a different camera person and different lighting um, that I think did do a little more as far as like making the sex look appealing. Um, but seasons one and two were j- they were just straight up people doing it. Like yeah. that's it. They're just they're just doing it. It was not good. Um, in the same well I don't think it was bad it's, I didn't like it. it it's like there's some of them made me uncomfortable like uh Stacey, well that's the point I guess yeah it's that's what I've it's not bad it's just not sexy yeah like does all sex have to be sexy to the viewer to perform a function it still looked bad it looked bad yeah, but I think that's, that's what I mean it, that's the point it looks bad um it was really just people having sex. Like that's that's what it that's what it appeared to as the viewer. In the same way that the show really boils down magic to this somewhat mundane thing of influence or winning rock paper scissors every time, uh, the abundance of the sex scenes, how they're filmed and lit, and how they're acted all sort of strip sex of its mysteriousness and its allure. So it's not that the people having sex are not having a good time. Presumably they are. Um, but rather the show is pointing to the ridiculousness of sex itself while it might be sexy it's not sexy in the way that most media tries to sell sex to us right mm-hmm. like it's just it's like it's pointing to the inherent ridiculousness of the act of sex which when you like when you light it nicely and everybody's hot and like there's beautiful sheets and that kind of stuff like sure that's sexy but when you really get down to it sex is pretty goofy (laughs) like it's just a it's just a weird kind of thing to do um and the show is leaning i think into that that idea of sex as a weird thing that humans do and less as this profound like beautiful turn on experience well i don't think any of them would have a beautiful passionate well i think it would sensual i think it would feel that way to them yeah like if you just look at people having sex (laughs) and they're just like they're just like going about their business that is very different from the sex scene that i mentioned in top gun yeah yeah does it two it probably to the people in the almighty the characters of the almighty johnsons i can't speak for the actors to the characters of the almighty johnsons it probably felt like the scene in top gun really but it looked like people just going at it i guess in some cases it might they might have felt that way but i feel like in a lot of cases i'm thinking just fucking well sure but i'm thinking more of scenes like between characters who care about each other okay like guy and axel do you think that one yeah or um even whose other relationships even mike and michelle like i think there are definitely times when they're just like going at it but Mm -hmm. even that can be like you can frame that in a way that's sexy but Mm -hmm. they don't so we have to ask why don't they and i think the answer is because they're pointing to the inherent absurdness of sex itself 
Um, and this is really in line with the show being farce, which is a comedy style that strives for amusement through exaggeration, through absurdity, and often through physical comedy, all of which we can say are happening in those mm-hmm. sex scenes, which are very silly to watch and unsexy. <laughs> um, I don't think that The Almighty Johnsons is a sex comedy or a farce, farce all of the time, but the way that they handle cer- certain subjects such as sex and gods and magic and those kinds of things suggests that at times they are mocking these ostensibly serious subjects. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. I think that that actually makes us realize how much of what we take seriously is a construction. Mm-hmm. Like sex, when we talk about it in culture, feels like a profoundly magical and beautiful and um, serious thing. Like like the way that I'm speaking of American culture primarily, I can't speak to what how people talk about sex in New Zealand, but in America, it's like a very serious issue, right? <laughs> like we're like very very focused on protecting children from it, yeah. but also selling it at all times. Um, something like the Almighty Johnsons, I think, is demystifying it and just being like, it's fucking weird. <laughs> like, yeah, we do it. It's good time, but like, it's pretty silly <laughs> to look at. Most people are when they're having sex are not having sex with the the idea that there is a camera watching them and that somebody else is going to look at it later. They're just having sex for their own pleasure. And I think that the sex within the show is having sex for pleasure and Mm -hmm. not having sex with the anticipation of a viewer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a bold choice. Mm -hmm. I think it I think it makes it feel funnier because it is really just pointing to the inherent absurdity of sex. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, So this is a quote from the Almighty Johnson's Family Dysfunction of Heavenly Proportions by Mark Clayman, who writes... What becomes quickly apparent is that the show's major conceit... Why can't I remember how to say this? Anyway. uh, That unbeknownst to the rest of us, larger-than-life dramas are playing out in the offices, bedrooms, and bars of Auckland. Works precisely because of its understatement. It all happens in small scenes without grand special effects, at barbecues, in alleys behind bars, and in the stacks of public libraries. The groundedness of our boys, a fridge full of beer, the trials of daily life and loving, is what consistently keeps the narrative from floating off to Asgard. The result is playful and sometimes even... is a playful and sometimes even blasé attitude towards the story's own mythic center. A half dozen gods and goddesses piling into an old station wagon to do battle against their enemies, or a goddess whose gift appears to be a preternatural ability to organize parties, or one of the brothers starts dating someone who is literally hell, etc. The series is often laugh-out-loud funny precisely when it plays it straight, with each character simply laying out the absurdity of a situation in the plainest possible terms, and then taking a pull from a pint— or when Axel filters new revelations through the limits of his Star Wars-centric imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so The Almighty Johnsons has a sort of similar present premise to something like American Gods. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not seen the show, so I'm talking exclusively about the book, um, which is quite serious. <laughs> American Gods is quite serious. There are moments of humor in it, but I would overall call that a serious fucking book. Um, I think The Almighty Johnson's approach of mixing these extremely big ideas of gods and myth and so on with very small elements of life is what makes it interesting. Um, It'd be very easy to get bogged down in the big god stuff, but instead Axel's quest to find Frigg gets largely discarded for like fully a third of the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead just about how much he loves Gaia until that goes away. Poor Gaia. Poor Gaia. Um, It brings to mind what I think continues to draw people to Greek myth today. Like, yes, it's very cool that Zeus throws lightning or whatever, um, but it's the petty squabbles of the Greek (laughs) gods that make them interesting. Yeah, They're all powerful, right? Except they're fighting over who's the prettiest or who insulted who. Someone gets turned into a goose, right? I'm sure. 
Lita, I think it's turned into a swan. A swan, yeah. Um, or who insulted who, or who's committing adultery this week. Like that, those are the kinds of stories that that make up a lot of Greek myth, and that's part of what makes it compelling. It can be on Bravo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Real Housewives of Asgard, the Real Housewives of Mount Olympus. Um, Give it to me. In in the Almighty Johnsons, you have normal people who are also gods, but their god powers are largely diminished. So they're really just like sort of lightly superpowered people. Um, they have the same insecurities most people do. One of my favorite moments of the show is Axel blaming himself for global warming. <laughs> First of all, because <laughs> relatable. Second, uh, it's just very funny to have this person who is like, one person blaming himself because a past incarnation of Odin introduced the Jormungand, the world serpent that will be bringing about Ragnarok <laughs> to the sea. And he's like, I caused global warming. That's very funny to me. Um, so while the characters might have slightly more ability to solve problems than the average person, they probably won't because they're still people. Like Axel cannot fix global warming. <laughs> he would try. He would try. He would third season Axel would very much try. Yeah, two he would second to second season Axel would try to. He would think about it at least. Yeah. Um I I found that very funny that the comparison like he has like these big god powers so he assumed that he can do the big god solutions but he really can't. He, he really can't do any big god stuff. No, he, he can't. never does. No. And and that's because like when when they do finally incarnate the god form, they you know fuck off to Asgard. Yeah. To do their thing up there. Um, Odin cannot be contained. Odin cannot be contained. Uh, This is a quote from Youth in the Older Crowd, The Almighty Johnsons and Redefining Coming of Age Television by Dr. Karen Beeler, who writes, uh, Carl Jung refers to the trickster-like wildness of the juvenile nature uh, before man moves to a more mature age in his development. Yes, I did, in fact decide to include this quote because i obviously had to talk about carl young i, just got, I didn't say it but i almost <laughs> put a note on there yes i did choose it for that reason anyway uh, carl young refers to the trickster-like wildness of the juvenile nature before man moves to a more mature stage in his development and colin is loki certainly embodies this wildness a character like colin slash the god loki crosses the boundaries of youth and adulthood with his boyish glee and sinister plans the harmful and potentially deadly consequences of some of his jokes or games constitute the drama side of this New Zealand dramedy and thus counterbalance the comic elements or create dark comedy. Yet paradoxically, his disturbing presence appears to be instrumental in helping others mature, even as they suffer as a result of his pranks. For example, he takes Axel out drinking and Axel is falsely accused of raping Brianna, a junior lawyer who works for Colin. Clearly, this component of the show is hardly the stuff of lighthearted comedy, but it does indicate how Axel's coming-of-age experiences involve the need to weigh boyish fun against the potentially serious consequences of his actions. The trickster figure Colin slash Loki thus maintains the connection between contemporary society and mythic characters or narratives by facilitating the expression of impulsive behavior that may otherwise be repressed in more sophisticated adult society. I just want to say that Frig Magnet was my favorite name of any of the episodes. It was a good name. Um... So Loki today is commonly cited as fitting the trickster figure archetype. Um, whether he is a god or not, sources differ as to whether Loki is a god or just a mythic figure. Um, as Dr. Beeler points out here, Young identifies the trickster as occupying a space of wild adolescent behavior, whether or not he is actually adolescent. So it doesn't matter what Loki's actual age is. It matter What matters is his behavior. Yeah. And he was a child. He was, yeah, super a child. He was a child given everything and every power and he fucked up. I mean, and he loved it. He, yeah. was, a, he was such a bad person. Just awful. Like, like the, I, lo- I really appreciate that they didn't give him any redeeming qualities. Yeah. They were just like, no, fuck that. This guy, this guy fucking sucks. Fuck him. 
Um, that's sort of what's going on throughout the whole show. The idea of um, occupying a space of wild adolescent behavior. Um, and some of the humor, and more specifically the dark humor, of Loki's actions comes through most prominently, I think, in that mismatch of an adult man behaving like a shitty little child. Because he behaves like a shitty little child. Yeah, in a um, suit. He's boss baby. Yeah, he is the boss baby. He is the, Loki boss, is baby. the boss baby. <laughs> um, case in point, what Dr. Bueller says here about this, like, quote unquote, trick of claiming that Axel raped Brianna, which is just that like so messed up. Fucked up. Um, or the scene where Loki sets fire to Ty's house while dancing. You know what? A lot of what, uh, when he took like glee and doing a lot of stuff like that reminded me of the Bond film in the 80s um, with what's his name in the Silicon Valley. Oh, my God. And he's shooting people and he takes glee yeah. in shooting people. That one was a, was a little more dark. A little but, bit. <laughs> but that's what it reminded me of is this sheer like commitment to just the glee in in destruction. Yeah. Um, it was... It was good. It's one of those things where you're not sure. Like, it's kind of funny to watch Loki dancing around this house yeah. while lighting it on fire. But you're also like, ha ha, that's fucked up. Yes. You're fucked, fucked up. up. Get Ingrid. <laughs> Get Ingrid out of there. Um, Loki, in embodying physical maturity with immaturity in his actions and emotions, serves as almost a warning about what will happen if people don't grow up. Right. Um, while much of the show is more lighthearted with regard to Axel and the other gods, because nobody in this show is particularly mature. No. There's nobody I'd point to and be like, now that now that is the person we can aspire At to. At first they're like, hey, what about Mike? And they're like, actually, absolutely fucking not. <laughs> actually, Mike fucking sucks. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, Good for his wife. <laughs> I have to tell you, you know what else he was in? You know what his first role was? Hercules. Dead alive. What? He's the main guy in Dead Alive. <gasps> I have to look this up. Yep, it's him. What the fuck? Yep. What's his real name? Oh, I'll just look up the... I can't remember. I think it's Tom. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so You've got to be kidding me. I am not. So while much of the show is more light- lighthearted with regard to Axel and the other gods' shenanigans, they often make jokes out of them. There's sort of this implicit warning. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's sort of this implicit warning about the consequences of immaturity. Act selfishly and immaturely, using your powers for personal gain, and you become Loki. Um, later in this essay, Dr. Bueller points out that there is a scene early on where Axel slices off a part of, I think it's Zeb's dagger by accident. Um, and there are some predictable jokes about penis size, of course. Um, but the real point of the scene is that Axel needs to learn to wield this, this power responsibly without hurting anyone, which is actually a pretty good summation of the show. Yeah. They're all kind of trying to learn how to wield their powers without hurting anybody, which is itself adulthood, right? Yeah. Grow, we, we hope so. We should aim to grow into people who can wield the power that we have without hurting anybody. Um, that's the goal. That's the goal. So even as this is a comedy show, even as, as it's, even as it is a sex comedy and a farce, it's drawing a distinct line for what is acceptable, responsible behavior for both gods and mortals, for young people and for adults. I think a lot of these trying to do all these different things is what makes it so confusing in the beginning because it, it does, it clearly wants to do all these things, right? Yeah. But it, it didn't, I don't, it couldn't, whether or not it didn't know how or literally couldn't commit to one. So they kind of just like threw it all out there and like, what's going to stick? Yeah, it was it was kind of and I, I think I'll talk more about it later. But I really think that there was a, there was an element of self-consciousness. Yeah, um, I would totally agree with that with with what they felt OK with just like s- committing to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because like a lot of Loki's shitty behavior is God based, right? Lighting things on fire, contracts and languages nobody can read. But all of that behavior stems from mortal desires. They stem from greed, jealousy, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, by exaggerating his behavior and embodying it in this well-known trickster figure, just to age everybody a little bit, it seems like it can't be that long ago, but Loki first appeared in the MCU in 2011, the same year that the first season of The Almighty Johnsons aired. So there was definitely a cultural familiarity with who Loki was in myth, even if nobody, even if people had not heard of, you know, Hod or Freya or Frigg. Well, if they saw Thor, then they probably heard of I'm pretty sure Frigg is in it. I don't know. It's been ages since I watched the first floor. How on earth does what's his name who plays Loki still look the same age? He's Loki in real life. I mean. Not aging. Kind of. I mean, I don't know. Loki truly is a trickster, just like in his show where suddenly I find him attractive. <laughs> his ultimate trickster. Are you talking about Tom Hiddleston, Loki? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I thought you were talking about the Almighty. Oh, no, no, no. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I was looking at pictures. So by by exaggerating Loki's behavior and embodying it in this well-known trickster figure, the Almighty Johnsons is drawing a line from the classic role of a trickster to the more specific role of the specific trickster in a story about coming of age. Tricksters are typically characters who get by on their wits and their schemes are often funny. So while the consequences of Colin and Loki's actions are dire, he is serving a similar exaggerating and farcic- farcic- farcical? Farcical. Farcical. Um, that's function. when you think there's an ice cold, but it's just kidding. it's just a farce. It's just a uh, knife. <laughs> um, so you know this is this is serving a similar exaggerating function as the sex scenes and the downplaying of magic by making him so over the top mm-hmm. evil and weird. He's ex- you're you're seeing the the role the the like furthest extrapolation of like for example Axel's shitty behavior. Mm-hmm. It, it it could turn into that if it isn't checked. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about race. Let's. Um, this is the best line that you have. I did not come up with this. I love it. Um, this is a lily white show for the most part. Uh, the majority of New Zealand's population is of European descent with about 16.5 of the population in 2018 being Maori. Um, I don't know that that necessarily reflects the racial makeup of the show because it feels pretty fucking white. Um, for the most of, for most of the show, Gaia is our lone person, let alone woman of color, mm-hmm. uh, before she leaves and then never to be seen again. And then like one God pops up for like five minutes in an episode and that's about it. Um, so sure. The show is focused on a family of descendants of Scandinavians, right? If they cast one right ac- white actor, they probably decided they should cast all white actors, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's primarily about a family. But there are plenty of supporting characters, the goddesses, Loki in Hell, Dawn, etc., who did not have to be white. And before you think, but they're of Norse descent. Here we go. Two things. Buckle in. Being Scandinavian does not mean you cannot be a person of color, especially when we're talking so many generations removed. And there is a historical precedent for people of color in the Viking Age. Um, this is a quote from white supremacists or misappropriating Norse mythology, says expert by Jeff McMaster. Um, the most compelling evidence refuting racial purity is DNA analysis of skeletal remains from the Viking age, which reveals a high degree of ethnic exchange. The extent to which people married and also took slaves or concubines from different places they went indicates it wasn't a pure Germanic monoculture, said Van Dusen. The Vikings traveled to what is now Newfoundland, she said, trading with people who were, quote, probably the ancestors of the Inuit. They also traveled to Islamic Spain and to Baghdad and Constantinople. 
I love that the, the evidence here is like DNA. Yeah, like it's a straight <laughs> like, DNA. They were world explorers. You're telling like, no, don't be ridiculous. Like, absolutely the the roots of of genetic diversity in Viking culture may have come from slaves or concubines. So I'm not out here saying the Vikings were so progressive or anything like that. Cause that would be ridiculous. But the evidence for for um racial diversity in Viking culture exists. Mm-hmm. So to act as though Viking culture was white entirely or even primarily is a complete fabrication. It's a farce. It's a farce. Um it's just it ugh. we'll get more into it later, but this is a, a common thing uh that white supremacists use. As as a person of Scandinavian descent, it pisses me the fuck off. Um so it too, there are also there's also plenty of opportunity to bring in other gods, which they do with um the Maori gods a couple of times, but they rarely stick around. And to be honest, they're usually treated as comparatively goofy to the already goofy Johnsons. Except for the one. The one guy was was pretty sharp. I can't remember yeah. his name, but he was pretty sharp. Um, the lack of people of color on the show and the treatment of the ones who did exist left a bad taste in my mouth, especially because so much of Norse and Viking imagery has been misappropriated by white supremacists. But did you like the one line where he was like, um, one of the Maori gods was like, like I'm Maori, you know I have a good libel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lawyer yeah that was great <laughs> that was really funny the parts the parts when they pointed to that kind of thing were very funny and i think well done it's just like where were where was it through the rest of the show like yeah why were they invisible um the last thing we need is to further the association between white supremacists and norse like norse myth and norse culture it's based on um and and i think that the creators of the show were probably operating from a place of 2011 ignorance mm-hmm. rather than willful misinterpretation but being ignorant in 2011 does not mean you are not enacting white supremacy mm-hmm. um this I, this whole idea is is based on misinformation about history that perpetuates the idea that racists historically were isolationist and white supremacist which in turn leads to the adoption of norse symbology by white supremacists see the qanon shaman jink anjali i think is how you say his name don't um, matter how he says his yeah. name. Uh, that guy. And even in pagan, specifically Asatru, I think is how you say it, and heathen communities, which are like co- um, modern pagan communities um, whose worship is based on like Norse tradition. Um, heathen being like an actual. Yes. Capital, not <laughs> capital H heathen. <laughs> Missy isn't calling anyone a heathen. No, this is capital H heathen. Except for maybe her cats. Which is like a, um, I guess, a denomination or, or a belief set within like pagan beliefs Hmm. um there's a line there's like this line uh between what are called radical racialists which is a specific term for people in the like pagan asatru heathen communities who believe that the folk and religious traditions of norse you know scandinavian etc cultures they believe that they stem from aryan nordic or more ambiguously just like white heritage so the line between radical racialists and neo-nazis is so thin as to be practically non-existent Uh, And that's why it's important that when we talk about Norse mythology, we don't reinforce the idea that it was white because A, it wasn't and B, who the fuck cares? Yeah, who's I just the idea of like getting so behind the Norse gods because you think they're white is so fucking weird. I don't think the gods knew what white was. Yes, that would be probably accurate. Like, I, I just I just it doesn't make sense to me that like you would, you, you know, you walk up to 
Odin and you're like, so I can only you can only worship you if you're white, right? And Odin would be like, what the fuck? What does that mean? What the fuck do you mean by that? But yeah, it's it's one of those things that when we talk about Norse myth and when we do like recreations or reimaginings of North Norse myth, that we are cognizant of the symbology and the history because otherwise you end up just reenacting white supremacy whether you meant to or not. Um and I think that's what happened in the show is this is a very white cast mm-hmm. um, full of Norse gods reenacting the idea, therefore, that that Norse gods are associated with white people. Um, and that's not great. No. With the exception of Idun being um, being Gaia. But even as we talked about earlier, if Frigg already existed, then that meant she would have been Papa Tuanuku. I, I think she was. Because in the end, when um, Frigg was the woman that um axel turned into Mm -hmm. it has to be that she would have been it's one of those things where we don't know if it's because the show was canceled and it might have gone a different direction (laughs) or because like we simply don't know what the intent of that like how that originally would have resolved um it could be that they changed their minds later uh it could be that they rethought it it could be any number of things but with the evidence that we have like the textual evidence that we have now it seems as though gaia was going to become papatunuku and um frig existed the whole time and just we just didn't know about her and Udin is like huh i'm gonna make you guys mad i'm gonna make (laughs) everybody mad yeah um let's talk about some ads all right i'm ready i would like to tell you about jeff stevens games producer of best-selling fifth edition adventures and supplements whoa are you ready i'm so ready uh once again i did not read this prior to sitting to read it now so I'm going to read, I'm going to tell you about Happy Jack's Fun House. And based on the last one, I don't think it's going to be happy or fun. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be fun to play through, but not like fun. Not the fun, happy sh- story. Yeah. Uh, so Happy Jack's Fun House. This is one of the adventures that uh, Jeff Stevens Games produces. Uh, the painted man rode into town, tossing candy and small trinkets to the, che- to the cheering children. That sounds great. Yeah, we're happy. The end. <laughs> the t- the children, their mouths stuffed with gumdrops, laughed at his jet black horse adorned with a white saddle festooned with jingle bells. He introduced himself to the town elders as Happy Jack and asked their permission to set up his attraction in the town square. The elders, seeing the happiness in the children, agreed. Happy Jack brought with him food vendors and a thrill ride, a large painted attraction which manifested from a green and red checkerboard leather satchel after he placed it on the ground. All was fun for two days. It was a good two days. It was a great two days and then he left. That was, <laughs> that was it. That's the sad part. <laughs> That's, yeah that was the whole adventure i'm kidding it's probably very good um and probably spooky is my guess i guess it gets a little spooky um this actually comes as part of a whole freak show collection uh you can get grim and grisly horror okay yeah grim and grisly horror uh check out the freak show collection <laughs> a new collection of three of the best-selling horror titles the madhouse of tasha's kiss happy jack's funhouse and annalise's revenge all of which are available in pdf softcover or hardcover on dungeon masters guild do it um adventures and supplements isn't the only thing jeff stevens games creates there's even a talk show called jeff talks rpgs available on twitch youtube spotify and apple Podcasts. on the show jeff speaks with rpg industry creators and players about topics in the rpg industry and he's even interviewed ed greenwood be sure to visit jeffstevensgames.com and subscribe to their mailing list for a free 5e pdf supplement free 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 um once again, Mary, I would like to invite you to come take a seat on the wench bench. I am like a permanent resident of the wench bench. <laughs> it's because you're a wench. I am a wench. Uh, I'm going to see some wenches. 
The podcast. The wenches aren't there. The wench bench is a podcast where two friends, Allison, a frustrated feminist, and Fonda, a positive seeking adult, discuss fabulous fictional females. Each episode, one of the hosts covers a different woman from all kinds of media. Uh, just a few of the characters they've covered include Annabeth Chase from the Percy Jackson series, uh, including how much they love Greek mythology and hate Zeus. I haven't read Percy Jackson, but I've heard really good things about it. It's on my list. It's on your list. Um, we've got uh, Lieutenant Uhura um, from Star Trek, the original series. Iconic representation in groundbreaking television. And Missy. And me. There's an episode about me. Um, and Adam Eve from Invincible, the impressive way the comics handle difficult relationship problems. I haven't read Invincible, but I, you know, I've heard pretty good things about it. Um, and so many more. Get ready for rants and tangents about problematic tropes, the evils of capitalism, and the importance of representation nestled in amongst fangirling, nerding out, and celebrating characters we love. You can find yeah. The Wench Bench wherever podcasts can be found, as well as Twitter and Instagram at WenchBenchPod. Do it. Do it. Or else. We'll come for you in your sleep. <laughs> we will become your sleep paralysis demons. We'll become your sleep wench. <laughs> I don't want your to be sleep paralysis sleep person is a sleep wench. Are you ready to talk about gender? The first thing we have to talk about with gender is just the title, The Almighty Johnsons. Uh, it could be innocuous. Their name's Johnson, after all. Or it could be a dick joke. It definitely is a dick joke. Or it could be a tongue-in-cheek reference to the show's treatment of masculinity. Oh, it's probably the last two. Uh, yeah, I think that it, yeah, I think that it's a little yeah. bit of both. Because yeah, you could yeah. rename the show The Almighty Penis, and it would be both true and a little bit funny. It's true. And also a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Yep. Uh, so I, I kind of go with the idea that it's this tongue in cheek idea of masculinity. Um, so before we get too into that, I do want to talk about gender in Norse myth and particularly gender fluidity in Norse myth. Um, this is a quote from Queer Asgard Folk by Linnea Hartsker, uh, who writes, Viking traditions, religion, and laws did promote separate spheres for men and women. Effeminacy was frowned upon. A woman could divorce her husband if he wore men's clothing. Sorry, if he wore women's clothing. Mm -hmm. Some people even believe that a woman's touch could render men's weapons ineffective. That's right. <laughs> Vikings had word for sexual contact between men, and it was considered shameful for a man to be the receptive partner. In that case, he was called Ergi. A man labeled Ergi could demand blood or payment in recompense. In recompense. Boy, I don't know how to say that word, do I? Recompense <laughs> for the insult. Still, traditional Viking gender roles were different from modern conservative ideas about them. For instance, although Viking men usually wielded weapons and Viking women typically managed the homestead, Women were not homemakers in the modern sense. Viking homesteads were often large farms that employed and housed hundreds of people. The women who ran them were more like a modern CEO than a 1950s housewife. So CEO of the home. <laughs> so a couple of things to remember here. Viking culture, which represents one specific subset of cultures who would have worshipped the Norse gods. Viking is like a period of time, not the entirety of Nor Norse culture. Um, so Viking culture had fairly strict spheres for different genders. Women were primarily homemakers and should not touch weaponry, you know, according to some stories. However, to say that women as homemakers follows along the conservative ideal of women as homemakers today would be a mistake. Women upheld the household, including all of its employees, giving them more power in their society, even if they were deemed unfit and maybe even cursed for fighting. Mm. They still wielded power within their society. That's why they couldn't touch the weapons, because they had too much power. They had too much power. Um, we also have evidence that gay sex between men the, the sex itself was not stigmatized, but being the receptive partner was. Uh, this is similar to our understanding of queerness among men in ancient Greece. Sex between men was prohibited and even encouraged in, in some cases. But is, be hmm? is this around the same time? I'm not sure. 
uh, but being the receptive partner was shameful. So you could have you could have sex between men, but to be the receiver was shameful. Masculinity was likely still based on the idea of dominance and penetration, and therefore to be submissive or to be penetrated was uh, not masculine. Further, being the receptive partner in Viking culture could get you labeled as ergi or unmanly, uh, which is an insult grave enough that you could demand blood payment for it. So if somebody calls you ergi, you'd be like, okay, prove it. And if you can't prove it, I will murder you in the town square. So you didn't want to be labeled ergi. Um, that said, Loki famously changed sex many times in North Norse myth and at least one time was the receptive partner to a horse. What um, happens? He transformed into a mare to lure away a stallion that was aiding the frost giants in building a wall around Asgard. And he ended up pregnant with a horse. When the horse was born, it had eight legs and it was given to Odin as a steed. Happens. Um, you also have the other famous story that is alluded to in the Almighty Johnsons. When Thor's hammer is stolen by giants and he disguises himself as a bride to sneak into the wedding and convince them to give Mjolnir back. This is cross-dressing rather than changing gender or sex. Um, but depending on your interpretation, this is potentially a story about Thor, the manliest of the gods, having no problem with inhabiting, however briefly, the role of a woman. Um, it's quite emotional. It was. Um, there are a couple of interpretations here. One, the story is meant to be comedic because it's laughable that Thor, who, as Hartsker says, is the most representative of masculine virtues and the hardest god to disguise, would be able to pass as a woman, there, therefore making this a story about the stupidity of the giants. But even so, as Hartsker says, that still leaves room for gender play, even in the rigid roles of Viking society, where a man dressing in women's clothing was grounds for divorce. Um, so this is a quote from the Almighty Johnson's Norse Gods Redux by Andrew E. Larson, who writes, What are we to make of this story that turns Thor into a comic drag queen as well as a bloodthirsty killer? Did Norse pagans simply consider Thor a god you can make fun of? One common reading sees Thor's battles with giants as a metaphor for good weather driving back winter, so Thor is sometimes viewed as a farmer's god. So is this a story of the Norse, Norse elites laughing about the god of the little guys, or an example of the coarse sense of humor of the peasantry? A more Freudian take on this tale reads Thor's hammer as his penis. When he loses it, he must literally and metaphorically become a woman until he gets it back. Or is this a myth... Or is this a myth, either an invention or a revision made by Christians to rid ridicule the old gods and loosen people's devotion to them? Because again, we're coming from Snorri's um, prose edda rather than from primary sources. Uh, did Snorri know some fragment of an old story about Thor losing his hammer and then just make up the details to have another tale to tell in his book? There's no easy way to know. So there are a lot of interpretations of what this story could mean in a Norse context, um, or whether it even had a Norse context. Like, was it fully invented for the sake of the prose edda? We, we simply don't know. Um, but what we can still say is that it indicates that at least by the time of Snorri, there was a, some, there was some idea that Norse people were to some degree tolerant of gender play among their gods. We can't make huge leaps about what that meant for people, not gods. Um, nor can we say it meant that they were 100% in favor of gender play. But because Thor's masculinity was not forever tarnished by his impersonation of a woman, we know that there was at least some degree or perception of tolerance, at least among the gods. Um, gods could do a lot. Gods could, and of course, gods could get away with things that people cannot, right? Um, but that brings us to talking about gender play and more, and first, more specifically, Thor in the context of the Almighty Johnsons. Um, so this is a quote from the Almighty Johnson's Norse Gods Redux by Andrew Larson, who writes, Perhaps the most interesting supporting character is Thor, Derek Hansen, a vulgar, violent, loudish, drunken goat farmer who loves his carpenter's hammer. When he first appears, there's a hysterical hammer throwing contest. This treatment of him is very much keeping with the myths, which frequently show him being tricked or embarrassed in various ways, but never actually defeated. 
It's this comic element of Thor that has led scholars to theorize that he's more a god for peasant farmers than a war god, as popular imagination has it. Weather is directly connected to agricultural fertility, after all. In what is probably the single most clever episode of the whole series, Thor loses his hammer when he throws it at a neighboring gay couple he is feuding with over farmland. The couple agrees to return the hammer only if Thor and Odin will show up to their bachelor party in drag. The show milks a good deal of humor from an inherently comic myth, but it also finds real dramatic power in Thor's struggle with his sense of emasculation and failure as a person, and the recovery of his hammer serves as a moment of genuine emotional healing. So, I find Thor's characterization really interesting. Mm -hmm. I suspect that, like many things about this show, if it were made today, things would play out a bit differently. Yeah. I think we would have seen a genuine apology from Thor toward the neighbor couple, for for example. Um, he did have a beautiful voice. He did have a beautiful voice. Uh, but I think the struggle that Thor has about accepting his neighbors and his own pain is in line with what I see as the show's themes, which is growing into a man, mm-hmm. which is explicitly what Axel is told to do. Mm-hmm. He is ex- he's told in no uncertain terms, to be Odin, you need to be a man. And then he struggles with what that means for... Because what does it reasons. mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, th- I appreciated that. Yeah, Growing into a man is a complex thing that encompasses traits associated with multiple genders, not just performative masculinity. We can get back into that later. I think a lot of what Thor does is performative masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, Thor is aggressively, often toxically masculine in the show. He's brash. He's controlling. He's violent. He's misogynistic. He's homophobic. Like all of these things are going on. There are lots of reasons why he is this way, but in the episode that reenacts the myth of him disguising himself as a woman to retrieve Mjolnir, Um, we see that the source of at least some of this behavior is the loss of two prominent women in his life, his wife Mm -hmm. who has died and his daughter who has left with a man he doesn't approve of. If Thor, as a man, as a patriarch, sees his job as being masculine to provide Mm -hmm. for and care for the women in his life, then he has failed in his own eyes and therefore he sees himself as a failure. It was sad. It was sad. It was really sad. It got real fucking dark. <laughs> Despite whatever dislike we may have for Thor, which I think is totally fair. He's a garbage, mean man. He's just annoying. Yeah. So despite whatever dislike we may have for him, it's clear that he's in pain. Like, this is not a man who is happy in his state. He's clinging to this idea of who he thinks he should be. He is not a crotchety old homophobe because he wants to be a crotchety old homophobe. He is that way because he has experienced pain and because he isn't dealing with it. Because to deal with your pain is not masculine. Um, Men don't have pain. <laughs> I think while we were watching that episode, I said something to the to the extent of men will. It's like, you know, the popular meme, for, meme format of the moment. Men will really X, Y, Z instead of going to therapy. Yeah. Men will really throw a hammer at their gay neighbors for playing opera too loudly instead of just going to therapy. Um, so being asked to dress as a woman and apologize is also emasculating for Thor, but note how he responds to the gay couple finding out about the dress. He's upset at the invasion of privacy, which Mm. I think is fair. Yeah. Um, especially because I think that they meant to humiliate him with his dead wife. Well, I think they didn't know it was his his dead wife. So yeah, they, I think they thought they were humiliating him with the idea of his secret feminine side. Yeah. Not knowing that the dress belonged to his dead wife. Exactly. I think that they thought maybe he does cross dress. Yes. And so, um, it ended up being really sad because he doesn't. Yes. And I think what was really interesting to me about that is he's, he's of course, again, upset about the invasion of privacy and the implications for his masculinity that somebody would think that he cross dresses. But his real concern with putting on the dress is that he is worried he'll ruin it. It's sad. 
Um, that dress stands as the reminder of his wife and he wants to preserve that memory in its most pristine form. So being asked to put on the dress is kind of a scary thing for him, both for his masculinity and for what it might do to this dress. Um, the dress is this, you know, this cherished memory, one that he is trying to protect without sullying it. And the first step toward healing this fracture in his personality is putting that dress on himself and allowing himself to both, you know, embrace his feminine side and to humble himself mm -hmm. because that's what he has to do. He has to admit that he was to some degree wrong to get Mjolnir back and he has to embrace a side of himself he's been staunchly denying. And I think the suggestion here is that masculinity is not being a dick to everybody or being homophobic or any other number of things that Thor seems to believe are masculine. Being being a man is being a good human and having the internal strength to be able to make a fool of yourself without having your masculinity threatened. It's just being an adult. Yeah. the Like being a man in the context of this episode is showing up at, you know, by way of apology and humiliating yourself to apologize mm -hmm. for doing a shitty thing to somebody else. Is it perfectly expressed? No, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. Like I said, if it was made today, I think we would have seen a genuine apology from Thor. Um, he would have sang a different song. It would have been an apology song. Yeah. Um, being a man or less gendered, being an adult, um, although that is not something that the Almighty Johnsons really achieves. I think there's, no. there's still a really heavy reliance on a gender binary there. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so being a man or being an adult is recognizing when you have wronged someone and making amends. It's changing the same process that we see Axel undergo throughout the series, including when he literally transforms into a woman. In Youth in the Older Crowd, the Almighty Johnsons in Redefining Coming of Age Television, Dr. Beeler brings up that Axel's transformation in the episode where he transforms into a woman, which I think is Frig Magnet. Is that the right one? Frig Magnet. <laughs> um, anyway, it brings up uh, that Axel's transformation puts an interesting spin on the usual makeover scene in a coming-of-age film. Um, so here's a quote from, from Youth in the Older Crowd. Uh, in Fantastic Worlds, Aaron Rabkin argues that metamorphosis is a fantastic device used for making dramatic equality, which had previously only been part of a character's psychology. The myth of Narcissus is a ex key example of this. However, in Axel's case, the physical transformation allows him to develop in a way that did not seem possible before. So the magic in this show... Uh, allows things that would be metaphorical in our world to become literal in the world of the show, right? It's so funny because, like, talking about the magical, um, Bob, my husband, sat down with me uh, towards the end of it just because he was just watching it. And he's like, oh, this is a fantasy show. I go, no, it's not. He's like, there's magic. I'm like, but it's not a fantasy. She's like, there's magic and, and gods. I'm like, but it's not really a fantasy show. That's that I think. So when we talk about, um, quibbling over genre, mm -hmm. that's a good example of yeah. it. Is it, is it a fantasy show because it contains magic or is it not a fantasy show because the magic is not the main emphasis? Yeah. I think that the way they use magic in the show is it really um, different and I agree, refreshing. but I would still describe it as a fantasy show. I would have to think about it more. Um, so the magic in the show allows things that would be metaphorical in our world to become literal in the world of the show. So Axel throughout has been very self-involved, very immature, and really persistent in his quest for finding Frigg, but not mindful of the feelings of the various women he meets in that process. He simply does not give a shit. And the, I think the real damning thing is that he would not, he doesn't think he doesn't give a shit. Like he sees himself, he sees himself as the protagonist, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's like, I'm the protagonist. Gotta find my Frigg. Doesn't matter who I hurt along the way because the real point is me finding Frigg. Um, in one episode, uh, Axel goes to sleep and drag, having been at a party with Zeb and Gaia. Uh, and he wakes up transformed into a woman, a woman that we later find out is actually Frigg. Mm -hmm. Like the woman that he transformed to, the actor is the same 
for woman Axel Except as it is for Frick. They didn't make her look very good. She looked much better when she was Axel. It's she just- looked like five years younger. And I was like, I didn't realize it was her until they said something. I was like, what? Josh recognized her immediately. Really? They yeah. just put, I think what the issue is, they put too much makeup on her. Mm, in the, in, when she was later? Yeah, because yeah. when she wasn't, when she was Axel, quote unquote, uh, she had no makeup ascent in the show she had she had the no makeup makeup she had the no makeup makeup look but this one i feel like they really had to um they were trying to enhance her almost to be like extra feminine so we knew she was frig yeah and i just um i don't think she looked good yeah i think i think that definitely the no makeup makeup look was was a better one um so he wakes up transformed into a woman and throughout the episode he is ogled treated weirdly by his friends and family um but more importantly toward the end of the episode he really sits and listens to gaia which is something he has not done before because he takes gaia for granted i thought he was gonna have sex with gaia as a woman Uh uh-huh i really thought it was gonna happen (laughs) um gaia tells him that axel mistreats all the women that he has been all the women that he has been with and then goes to bed there's no romantic action between them depressing um mike then asks michelle to show axel what women like axel and michelle have sex and then he returns to his usual form um through his conversation with gaia and the sex with michelle axel learns that relationships are not all about him (laughs) should he have had to learn that no but he he did he like i said he has main character syndrome he i mean he is the main character this is a story but like he ha- he has the perception that he is the main character and therefore he's the only one that matters yeah um this is a huge point of growth for axel mm-hmm. um because he's been seeing himself as the hero of the story and the point of the quest to find frig the entire time ignoring that frig herself is also part of it yeah i thought the way that they handled gaia finding out that she might be frig and her absolute like losing control over her life was really good i did too i like i really liked everything having to do with gaia in season two because i because axel went straight in there with like isn't this magical isn't this wonderful that it's us and she's just like "Uh, but i don't get to choose that it's us Mm -hmm. and i thought the way that they handled that was good and i thought it was um i don't think that Axel learned as much from it as he should have. Yeah. Um, but I thought that it was um a important thing to for the show to say. Yeah, I agree. I liked having that that alternate perspective yeah. coming from Gaia of mm-hmm. like, oh no, actually it sucks to have my choices taken away once again. Mm-hmm. Um so from what I understand, there is not a lot of mythological precedent precedent for Odin changing gender, unlike Loki or even Thor in that one story. Um, there is a little more permissiveness afforded to Odin as far as what he's allowed to do, whether that's because he is Odin or because as Odin, he was seen as someone who should embody different parts of Norse, Norse culture. Um, one example of this is uh, Satyr, which is a form of magic primarily believed to have to do with divining and shaping the future. Um, Satyr could be pra- practiced by any gender, um, but to practice it was seen as a feminine trait. So if a man practiced Satyr, he could invite the accusation of a male or he could invite the accusation of er- being ergy during the Viking Viking era. Um, as Linnea Hartz- Hartzger points out in Queer Asgard Folk, in one saga, Freya taught Satyr to Odin so he could gain knowledge of the future. And Odin, as god of berserkers, was also a god of a form of ecstasy, in this case from battle, um, that was usually a hallmark of women's magic. So despite being a man, he actually became associated with Satyr. Uh, and I really don't think that anybody was risking the potential blood feud of calling Odin Ergi. <laughs> um, 
And I think that you could make the case that there's a really clever interpretation of this in the Almighty Johnsons. In a world strictly divided into gender stereotypes, Axel's growth as a character and his growth into Odin, which, which again, he is explicitly told is him becoming a man, that growth takes place when he acts less like the stereotypical man. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he listens to Gaia, when he dresses as a woman to attend the bachelor party with Thor, when he drops all of the masculine posturing against Mike over Frigg and ultimately mm-hmm. leaves the choice of, up to her. Mm-hmm. Those are the moments when he is not acting like a stereotypical, like hyper-masculine man. Yeah. Those are the moments when he is like listening and, you know, not posturing. Um, so I really think that the show is trying rather self-consciously to challenge toxic masculinity in a way. I think that if it were made today, that self-consciousness would be less evident. Mm-hmm. Um, and the show overall would be stronger for that. Or it would have been a, a much more uh, fleshed out yeah. um, in gaining that yeah. um, confidence. Especially if it leaned more into some of the fluidity that we see in Norsemith, right? Because like, I'm thinking of shows like when you compare, for example, just to use something that I feel like most of our audience is familiar with. Something like The Office compared to The Good Place, right? Mm-hmm. This one creator's evolution mm-hmm. throughout their work. The The Office was airing in like the, it started in like the mid 2000s. Um, and it started out like, there are moments in The Office where you can kind of see how it grows into something like The Good Place, right? Mm-hmm. You have moments of like connection and, and it really is just a show about some weirdos who you know, sometimes are wonderful to one another and sometimes are horrible to one another, but they all kind of grow together. In this very brown beige. In this very brown setting. I can't watch the show because it the, the setting makes, like, the colors make me depressed. It really makes you feel like you're in an office. And I just can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's okay because, honestly, The Office is one of those things that, like, I enjoyed for a while mm-hmm. when it was on, but, like, there's better versions of that now. Yeah. I am okay with leaving The Office behind. There yeah. are some parts of it that are still genuinely funny to mm-hmm. me, but, um, I haven't felt compelled to go back and watch it. Mm-hmm. But in the same way that the show The Office in the mid-2000s, you know, paved the way for a show by the same creator, The Good Place, which is extremely earnest and extremely, like, we have to be better to one another. Like, I think that, had the Almighty Johnsons, you know, if there was the Almighty Johnsons 2 made today, <laughs> it would feel kind of comparable to The Good Place as The Good Place is to The Office. Um, so I, I I think that, like, I feel that earnestness there. I mm-hmm. feel that, that like, attempt at critiquing toxic masculinity I think there. the third season just really hits home that they really wanted to say something. Yeah, I because agree. Because it, it really, it was a comedy, but, like, it got really dark and really serious. Like, um, Thor mm-hmm. being on the tractor with the noose around his neck. Mm-hmm. I was like, what the fuck? Axel on the roof. Yeah, what the fuck? Um, it's like they're dealing with very serious things. Um, and sometimes that feels like tone whiplash, but like those moments of genuine connection and those moments of like really on- like honesty about, um, the emotions, I think. Like they they're gesturing toward, I think, this feeling that the creators have about adulthood and about masculinity, but maybe aren't quite ready to put into words yet. Yeah, but they get much better at it. Yeah. Like when you watch the first season, you're like, what? (laughs) But yeah, I think the more it goes on, the more you see like where like you see what the heart of it is, even if they're not ready to to say it clearly yet yeah um 
because unfortunately the show has some issues with its humor um it feels extremely dated at times in terms of the words they use i felt really uncomfortable right when we meet axel and anders brings the two women in and and axel's first thing that he does he puts his arm around him and then he goes and he grabs their butts and i was like Mm -hmm. oof yeah oof yeah it's uh it's wild and some of the words they use throughout the show are words that are no longer acceptable. Yeah. Um, the R word used so often. It's just in season three. So much. Like, they're just like, we're going to use that constantly. You get an R. You get an R. Yeah. Um, some of the jokes, especially Andrews' jokes about people's gender and sexuality, hmm. um, they feel very dated. I'm surprised that Andrews didn't have um, sex with more men. Honestly. I really am. I feel like to the point where, like, Anders would have been so into sex and like confident in, I don't know if he's confident in his sex. No, I think he is confident in his sexuality, but having sex with men would just be another conquer. Mm-hmm. So missed opportunity, missed opportunity. Uh, I will have, have you Anders know, more dicks on that note. The most popular pairing for the show on AO3. Literally every time we watch a new show, I have to be like, okay, what is the popular pairing in this? Uh, in this case, it is Anders and a guy from being human. Because they played brother dwarves in the Hobbit. Absolutely not. What? <laughs> the second most popular pairing is Ty and Don. That's because they're sweet. You know what? I went up and down with Ty and Don. There were some times when I just didn't want them together. Yeah. Because Ty sucked. God, Ty <laughs> needed to grow. Ty sucked so bad. And I just. God, he did. Don just wanted to live her fucking life. Leave Don alone. God, I'm so glad they gave her a better haircut from season one. Oh, yeah. It was so bad. I love Don so I know. much. Don is great. Um, so to return to the idea of the, the immature humor, uh, this is a quote from the Almighty Johnson's Norse Gods Redux by Andrew E. Larson, who writes, because the show is focused on the four brothers, it does have a tendency to drift into a somewhat laddish mentality, as the Brits and Kiwis say. While Odin's pursuit of Frigg is the center of the show, the marriages and relationships in the show occasionally veer toward the women are crazy bitches cliche, and the show has a lot of jokes about penis size and women as sex objects. It's hard for me to decide if the show is trying to make a point about male sensibilities or just indulging them. Um, as it went on, I really felt as though it was trying to make a point, but it wasn't always succeeding because it was clinging a little too hard to traditional masculinity. Like it was like, it was not yet ready to let go of the dick jokes and womanizing. Um, being one of the boys, that kind of thing, you know, it feels like there's a fear of being too earnest, even as the show seems to desperately want earnestness. Yeah. Like it wants it so bad, but it's afraid. They had such like, it just is so interesting to me that from season one to season two and three and seeing like how truly they wanted to say something mm-hmm. that was genuine. And I was really impressed. I think the show is a mirror of itself. Yeah. Like the I show, the show really grew into itself yeah. and, and its adultness as it went on, even Absolutely. as it, because I, the thing is, I don't think being an adult is an absence of dick jokes or anything <laughs> like, but it is learning to have compassion and, yeah. and learn that, you know, you're not the center of attention and mm-hmm. that people grow in different ways and grow apart and grow together. And so I would a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. And like, as you know, as a writer, I totally get the desire, the fear of being too earnest while also desperately wanting to be earnest. Like I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a hard hurdle to overcome. Um, in focusing so hard on men and masculinity, which truly is not a bad thing. I I don't think that there's anything wrong with telling stories about men and masculinity, 
But the show focuses so hard on men and masculinity that it seems to entirely forget the development of its female characters. Yeah. Who mostly serve as foils or complications for the men. They got better. They did get better. Um, I really liked them. They were the highlight of the first season, the goddesses and Agnetha. I didn't like them. Oh, I loved them. They were the only thing I cared about I in the first season. Really, I didn't really like anybody, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, but I thought that um, by the end, I mean, I, I'm, uh, Agnetha was always my favorite. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised in how much I ended up liking Michelle. I think Michelle had the clearest character yeah. of the goddesses. It, like her and Agnes. Well, Ingrid does as well, but Ingrid doesn't get a story, is the thing. Um, they often, like the, the, the female characters, the goddesses specifically, often do have desires of their own, but they're overshadowed or solved by the men, which means the women only rarely grow. Um, this is a quote from how the female characters in the Almighty Johnsons were misused and how that likely led to the end of a great series, which is by Professor Roseanne Welch, who writes, Agnetha took a powder after letting her oldest son, Michael, know he was the god Ul. And that he would be the sole provider for his younger three siblings as Agnetha abandoned them. She's over 40, she's strong, and she's unapologetic. All interesting characteristics for a female character on television these days. Here, Agnetha is the bad parent, though their dad, who will show up eventually in the series, also abandoned them. Agnetha seems to have done them far worse. Just as I was enjoying such a fun female villain, spoiler alert, the newly emerging male villain, the god Loki, came along and killed her. Yes, Loki was a blast to watch, but working together with Agnetha, he could have been even more fun rather than losing the female bad guy as well. I was expecting her to marry him and create a partnership of villainy that would have played off the classic fairy tale ideas of evil stepfathers and mothers, but instead the writers opted to let the male villain destroy her and take over her place as the biggest force working against Axel and his brothers. I agree, but man, the I thought him burning the the forest down was like... That was peak fucked up. It was peak fucked up. It and was I was fucked up. And I feel like they had that idea and they're like, we got to use it. Yeah. Because it, it is a good, it is good. It was good. It was good. It sucks for her because she was really interesting and she was, she had a lot of different sides. And so mm-hmm. she was fun and interesting to watch, but it was a good, like it was, I was just like, whoa, what the I was, fuck? My hope was that, she, was that he had fucked up. Yeah. Because fire is an imprecise weapon. I was hoping that maybe she was in a different, like she went to go be like a tree in someone's house. <laughs> yeah, I was I was hoping that she would come back because yeah. I loved having her as an antagonist. Yeah. Uh, and it was just dis- like, as Welch writes here, it was disappointing to have her vanish mid-season. Um, I think developing female characters doesn't mean that they always have to be good, right? Men are allowed to be all kinds of complex in the show. Like mm-hmm. Loki is an interesting and complex character despite the fact that he's a piece of shit. Um, and to an extent, the women are as well. Michelle is the best example, right? Mm-hmm. But Ingrid, who I love very much, love and especially Stacy, are just sort of left behind until they become useful to the plot. Oh, again. you mean Stacy the pole dancer? Yeah, you know, Stacy the pole dancer, her primary function, Stacy the pole dancer. Um, so I would, ridiculous. <laughs> I would have loved to see more Agnetha. She was a delight to watch. Uh, and her ending was not satisfying. Um, not because, like, not because, like, it was fucked up from a Loki perspective and that was like good for Loki um, but she was sentenced to to by men you know she was sentenced to become a tree and then she was killed by a man and as, aside from Mike's unrealized hatred for Loki afterwards it really didn't have any impact other than for like two episodes where they quibbled about her will but that was about it yeah her death did not like really do anything and the will storyline didn't really matter <laughs> no the only thing that mattered about it was like the tension it created in the episode with Ingrid and her ex mm-hmm. um, and that Stacy got to be a bike career owner 
company owner. She ended up being a girl boss. Yeah, Stacy ended up being a hashtag girl boss. <laughs> the girl bossification Poor of Stacy. Um, so this is a, a, another quote from the same uh, essay, how the female characters in the Almighty Johnsons were misused by Professor Roseanne Welch, who writes, in season three, we saw a revival of the goddess power when Michelle Schaffen learned how to harness the power of the Yggdrasil, a limb from the tree of life that enhances your personal power, but only of the female gods and not the males. This was a cool idea, inventing something that only worked for the women, almost an apology for having dropped the ball <laughs> on their characterizations for the whole of season two. Before I get into how the stick, as the male gods, impotent to its power, derogatory, derogatorily, or was it pornography called it, pornographically called it, returns in power to the females via Michelle Schaffen, I have to take a side trip to mention another one step forward, two steps back moment by noting that the stick only gave Stacy slash Fula slash handmaiden to Frigg the power to be a better pole dancer. I imagine the writers went that way because it was funny and because the actress, Eve Gordon, was a performer and producer of, of aerial spectaculars. So why not use that talent in the show? Why not? Because well, what's she going to do with it? Because it was a blatant moment of over-sexualizing a character who had already had sex with a few of the regulars and would settle into the spot of long-term sex partner to the Johnsons' older, odder oracle of a grandfather, Olaf slash Balder. The writers, relationship. The writers seemed to be taking a small stab at making Stacy more than a sex joke when she began to run her own bicycle delivery firm, but her major power continued to be making mad love. So, a few things to discuss here. A lot of good points were made. Um, <laughs> first, I thought that Anders... The fact that Anders went to get the a piece of Yggdrasil, but its power actually belonged to the goddesses, was a nice twist. Yeah. Um, as Dr. Welch discusses here. I think it really uh, exemplifies Agnetha and, like, her manipulation. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, it made the goddesses more central to the story and gave at least Michelle, with a hint of Ingrid, uh, a side plot of their own. Yeah. Right? Uh, I thought it was especially interesting because they primarily refer to Yggdrasil as the stick, which is absolutely a penis joke. Um, while I don't love the idea that the goddesses have to wield, you know, phallic power to be useful to the plot, I do like that the gods assume that it is theirs and it isn't. I liked that. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was effective. I thought that was, again, one of those moments of gesturing to a critique of masculinity, the assumption that any tool of power must belong to the gods. Um, I wonder if there's something to say about, like, um, a woman and a man can make life, but ultimately, you can use your stick. But I'm the one that's still, <laughs> I'm the one that's still going to wield the power of of life. I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it. Um, the gods do not own the magic, and this is in line with what we know of things like Sater and North Norse myth, right? The idea that yes, a man can practice magic, but it is a feminine thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's you know that's not to say that like that's an unproblematic thing but it is like it is but it is what it is you know i think dr welch makes a really important point here um yggdrasil enhances michelle's ability to heal and ingrid's ability to be an oracle and also stacy's pole dancing ability which we were not introduced to until she pole danced on yggdrasil i I think the whole thing was that she was supposed to be a lot stronger Mm -hmm. um but why would she be like what about because like you know michelle was a was a doctor Mm -hmm. and ingrid was always an oracle but what how does having strength have anything her, she can cycle better I, I know like they could have they could have turned her into a messenger of the gods yeah that's or, what, that's what would have made sense or like the voice of of gods yet to come or something yeah, like that like, very briefly she is the messenger like she is the 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 messenger person between um frig mike and axel um 
but it is like seriously she immediately drops that duty mm-hmm. <laughs> so she doesn't like being a handmaid and that makes things even worse yeah that her being a hand like the tension between her hating housework and being a handmaiden i thought was a genuine like genuinely funny mm-hmm. um but stacy needed a story yeah and she did not get one she literally just became there to be a pole dancer to be a girl boss and to um, make me feel weird when she has sex with Olaf. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I I I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe. So weird. How could you Why? leave Ingrid? <laughs> Why? Oh, it was awful. Um, the show seems just absolutely unable to do anything relevant with Stacy. She's everybody's handmaiden. She runs a courier company, but when it comes to plot relevance, she's mostly just there to have sex with Olaf. <sighs> um, it's a really disappointing arc if you can even call it an arc yeah it's just like really that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna do i think that there were so many opportunities for what you could have done with with stacy with her strength with her being a handmaiden um you know there's you can come up with something better than really good at pole dancing like i'm sure she is she seemed really good at pole dancing she was excellent i'm glad that th- that they got to showcase that skill of hers but like she could do something else also you know, and it was really disappointing to see her have no plot relevance in the end. Ingrid had plot relevance. Michelle had plot relevance. Uh, and then Stacy was there to be a, a hashtag girl boss. Um, and was, only in the end. And only in the end. It was very weird. And I don't like if you're not going to use her, then just write her out of the show, I guess. Like, what are you doing? Um, but that's the thing is, like, like I said, I think the show really was like kind of making gestures toward critiquing the idea of being a man. Um but you, when you do that, you do not have to do that at the expense of female characters. And that is like Michelle got a solid storyline, as um, Dr. Welch points out in her essay. Um, ultimately, it introduces the problem with the um, the, uh, the the scheme she has going um, of healing people. Anders points out a, a pretty fatal flaw in that, which is eventually she's going to be discovered. And, and as he points out, the last person known for healing um, for healing things as a god didn't go over super well. Um, he points that out, but like, how did Ingrid and Michelle not think of that? Why couldn't they solve their own problem? Why did it have to be solved by Anders? Yeah. Why Anders? Anders doesn't know shit about shit. I also think like season one, Ingrid would have been very upset with the decision to charge money to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just, you don't, you do not have to do develop the idea of masculinity by sacrificing female characters you can do both and i think the show like i said i think if the show was made today it'd be different it would be different and it, it could be better you know it could be worse we never you, there's no way to know for certain um but i think that it could have been a little clearer mm-hmm. and a little more involved in its female characters without feeling like it had to sacrifice the the conversation about mis- masculinity to yeah. do it um but overall i actually really liked the show i was that last season was really good yeah i was like i was once everything once everything kicked in with Gaia Mm -hmm. I was like okay 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 yeah I'm in I got it I'm in uh and then it just continued to get better and sometimes really heartbreaking yeah um I actually ended up really liking it and I'm glad I'm glad that because I had never fucking heard of this show before Leslie commissioned it (laughs) I'm glad that we watched it I am too I'm glad for the commission because I would not have stuck around after season yeah (laughs) usually I give shows a full first season or half a first season if it's like Vampire Diaries length um 
the vampire diaries length is now the metric by which i judge everything is it shorter than the vampire diaries or is it longer <laughs> um i like if i ha- i usually give things a season and if they don't grab me then i'm then i bounce um so I would have bounced after the first season. But the nice thing about this being a commission is that I had to watch the rest of it. And I'm glad I did. I enjoyed yeah. it. Um, pleasantly surprised. Pleasantly surprised. Do you have anything else to say about the Almighty Johnsons? No, it was good. It was good. Um, I ended up genuinely liking all of the characters. Not in the sense of like, I think they're good people. But like as characters. But as characters. Like I really liked, I loved the turn for Mike. I loved it. Yeah, I hate him. He sucks so bad. He's so awful. I loved it. It was, it was, I really liked the fact that he had been like this. He had been so obsessed with his own role as patriarch of this family that he leaned so far into it um, as to be fucking annoying. That's that right there is like toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. right? He's so obsessed with his role as, as leader that he like stomps all over everybody to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I ended up really liking all the characters, even the terrible ones. Yeah, uh, I thought they were believably and interestingly terrible. Agreed. Um, justice for Stacy, justice for Ingrid, um, justice for Don. Really, <sighs> I think I, I wish, cried so. Hard. I wish John would just John. I wish <laughs> Don would kick Anders square in the balls. Yeah. Um. Fuck that dude. The my favorite part of the show. I couldn't say this when you when you were over because you hadn't gotten here yet. One of my favorite scenes in the in the show was the scene where Colin and Anders are in the office with Dawn and Lance. And Dawn is trying on the fancy dress. Oh, yeah. And Lance is just being a huge dick. And I was like, imagine being in a room with Colin and Anders mm. and not and being the worst person in the room. <laughs> imagine the depths to yeah. which you've sunk. It's pretty awful. If you're in a room with Colin Anders and you're the worst person in the room. Um, yeah. Almighty Johnson's. That's pretty solid. Yeah. Stick around after that first season if you decide to watch it. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. You can find us online at fakegirlscast.com, which has all of our old episodes. Um, all that. All that. Uh, this goodies. It's, all them It's goodies. got the goodies. What's um, that song? My, my goodies. goodies. Yeah. Not my goodies. <laughs> that's all I know of that song. I think it's by Ciara. Sounds right. The first lady of the Seahawks. What? She's married to Russell Wilson. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know anything. Um, you can also find a link to our podcast network, uh, Penwich Studio. Check out the other shows on the network. You will like them. Uh, you can also find a link to our Patreon, where for a small donation per episode, you can get cool rewards like mail or like uh, access to our outlines, our cool playlists um or you can even commission us to do an episode i did put some limitations on commissions going forward it needed to happen um so going forward for 50 dollars, you can commission us to do an episode on a topic of your choice which can be three seasons of a tv show or like five movies um this is this is negotiable so the reason i made this negotiable is because something like three seasons of the vampire diaries is different from three seasons of the good place right yeah one is 10 ep- 10 half hour episodes the other is four years 22 45 minute episodes and also like i'm not if you try to commission us to do like a four season show i'm not going to say well we're only watching three so yeah. you have to pay another 50 dollars to get that last season so all of this is negotiable um you can do it through patreon you can also email us if you just you're like i don't want to join patreon i don't have a patreon i don't want to bother with it that's fine too um but it does introduce us to cool new stuff like the almighty johnson's which mm-hmm. neither of us probably would have watched 
um, if we hadn't been commissioned to do it. But so, it also means we did B movie. So it does also mean we did B movie. Um, so make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> next time we will be doing the final James Bond episode hey. on Daniel Craig. Um, not so on far him. so good. Have you watched? Which I've watched the first one and I've seen the other one. So I think I only have the... You have Quantum of Solace, which is bad. And, and Spectre, which is bad. Yes. And No Time to Die, which is supposed to be good. The one of the haunted house I've seen most of. Skyfall is very Skyfall, good. Skyfall, yeah, yeah, yeah. Skyfall is very good. So I have a three, technically. Yeah. Uh, and after that, we're going to be doing New Moon. Oh, so ready for the conversation. Oh, God. <laughs> I have <laughs> The to go, conversation. I have to go get New Moon. I don't have it. Um, it's on the library. Yeah, I'll probably go get it from Half Price Books or something. Uh, and after that, we will be doing Dairy Girls. Which I'm excited. Three hours to also, watch the whole series. Not about, it's not D-A-I. It is R-Y. not. I believe Dairy is a place. Yes. Uh, so we're going to be doing some learning about history. When I one. first saw it on Netflix, I saw it said Derby Girls. I did too. <laughs> I'm glad we both can't read. Good, good, good. Um, that actually will be our final episode for this year. Um, we, there will be no new episode November 8th because I will be on vacation hey. and we are taking the month of December off from full episodes. So we will still be doing what we've been up to every other week, um, but there will be no full episodes until we come back January 17th with an episode that will probably be on seasons five through eight of the Vampire Diaries. Mm-hmm. Probably. No guarantees with the Vampire Diaries. Um, after that, I know we're going to be doing episodes on Hellblazer, on Fruits Basket, and then I believe we have another friend commissioning us to do Howl's Moving Castle. But I Hell yeah. But I don't know when. Um, so anything in January is a bit nebulous. We'll let you know as we get closer to that Good date. word. Um, so yeah, that's it. All right. Catch you on the flip side. In Asgard. Asgard. <laughs>